Education today can be difficult and draining and amazing and fulfilling and so many things all wrapped into one. The dynamics of what we do can leave us needing every ounce of inspiration and motivation we can get. I've been a principal and educator for over 25 years, and I find my motivation and inspiration in many different places. As a principal, I often find it's my job to inspire and motivate and energize the team around me. I have to be the principal inspiration of my school, but what things inspire me as a principal? Welcome to Principal Inspiration, a podcast for educators. I'm your host, Rick Hunt, and these are my thoughts about the people and the stories, anecdotes, observations, and conversations that are my principal inspiration on any given day. My sincere hope in sharing is that you might be inspired as well. I hope this podcast leaves you feeling energized, challenged, and ready to go be awesome. Our students deserve nothing less. So it was shortly after my wife and I got married, um, that this discussion occurred and what it centered around was mom's meatloaf. See, my wife really absolutely loves how her mom makes meatloaf. So I called her mom and I got the recipe. Now I'll be honest. And, um, I, I do occasionally tease my mother-in-law about this because she is one of those chefs that just kind of, you know, grabs what's available. So if you don't have oatmeal, for instance, to go in the meatloaf today, you put in crackers. Or if you don't have crackers, it's vice versa. It's just whatever. She substitutes, and sometimes the substitutions work, and sometimes they're a little scary. It just is what it is. But she could take a block of cheese and a pound of beef and whatever pasta she's got and make an amazing meal. And that was the kind of food my wife had grown up on, and mom's meatloaf was something that she really enjoyed. Now, I had grown up with a slightly different variety of meatloaf. Mine had a few different ingredients in it. I think every meatloaf does. You go to one restaurant, and meatloaf is not going to taste like another. If you go to one restaurant, maybe it's a brown gravy on the top of the meatloaf, and then another one puts ketchup. And some people just said, you never put brown gravy on a meatloaf. And other people said, ketchup what? It's kind of like chili, right? Like you make a pot of chili, you've got somebody who wants beans, you get got somebody who wants beef, some people who have Yes, Eric, I'm talking to you. It's a friend of mine. We have this discussion all the times. He believes that chili con carne, it is chilies with meat. Uh, you are not supposed to put beans. Beans represent a sacrilegious view of chili, and you should be cursed for your ever wanting to put beans in. And then you got the pasta clan. The folks who want to put pasta in their bean chili or pasta in their meat chili, whatever it is. You grew up with something, some recipe, some mix of ingredients that made up your mom's meatloaf. And if you weren't a meatloaf eater, well, pick chili, pick spaghetti, whatever it is. You know what I'm talking about. If you had a mom or dad who cooked a meal for you, grandma or other, there was probably something in theirs that was a little different than if you went over to your friends and ate the same food. They may have even called it something different. Who knows? Meatloaf can be a lot of different things. And so can social-emotional learning. Boy, did I just pull a transition right turn into a wall for you there, didn't I? So when I look at school, when I look at packaging up programming, when I try to think about what I want, it, it reminds me of mom's meatloaf. It reminds me of this conversation with my wife about, hey, you know, what goes into a meatloaf? Well, meat, generally. Meat. You, But what kind? Well, some people say that you've got to have half pork and half burger. Um, I like to put a little deer meat in mine when nobody's looking. You know, what kind of meat goes in there? Well, it needs to be meat. It can be a little bit of a different flavor or variety. 
Some people like onions. Some people put green peppers in. Some people put chunks of uh, other vegetables in their meatloaf. I'm not entirely sure that's acceptable, kind of like the beans and chili thing for Eric. But, you know, people argue that that's something you have to do. But some other ingredient or binder or something goes in there, whether that binder be breadcrumbs or cracker crumbs, maybe oatmeal, whatever it is that you mix in there to bind your meatloaf, uh, whether you use one eggs or two, uh, spices, there's going to have to be some kind of spice to get that meat up to level. And then typically there's a covering or a coating, right? Like meatloaf has a general theme, but it can look very different in one place or the other. I think school programming can be that way too. School programming um, around certain aspects can have a formula for success, but not necessarily be a packaged product you can buy. And that's where I get to social-emotional learning programming in a school. I think that social-emotional learning programming uh, has to have some core key elements to it. I think that you have to have some, some things that are essential or critical to the success of a program, but they can look very different one building to the next. And so for social-emotional learning, I, I kind of look at that, and I've, I just did a podcast with Indiana uh, Association of School Principals uh, where, I, where I was on and talking about an article that I wrote for their October Indianagram, um, and was talking about this program that we use here at Rockport Elementary. It's one that I supported the development of at Crystal House Academy in Indianapolis it's called P2R2. Uh, kind of like formula written, right? The P with a little two underneath and an R with a little two. Kind of make it look like some chemistry formula. Because what I realized as an educator over a number of years is that there is not a one-size-fits-all program that works for all kids. Not in a classroom as a teacher. I mean, I can think about fourth grade year. Um, I was at uh, school in Indianapolis, and my principal, Leon Carter, and I sat down, it was right after December, and I was ready to quit. I think it was my third or fourth grade teaching, third or fourth year teaching. I was in fourth grade, and I was with the most difficult class I had ever been with. They were challenging with the idea. These were not kiddos who were behavior issues necessarily, but they were so stinking smart. And they had such a, a, a diverse um, spectrum of needs that they had around their social emotional. I had kiddos who were a little on the spectrum. I had a couple of kiddos who uh, I had two moderately mentally handicapped students in the class. This was a group that boy, they just there was a broad set of needs, and that broad set of needs brought challenges. I had some kids in that class who had IQs of 130 plus who were extremely gifted in, in, in academics and then other students who really struggled and need a lot of structure and support. And in that, what I was finding is I was having trouble keeping everybody focused and working. I was working myself to death. I was going home exhausted and the kids weren't and things weren't right. And so I was falling down. I needed something. And so I sat down with Leon and I, I had tried this particular thing that this teacher, a clip chart or some other thing, and it wasn't working. And then I had tried this other program and I'd shifted to that and that didn't work. And he said something to me. He said, Rick, he said, what does work? Well, I think sometimes if I have the kids engaged in this way and we, we stand up and do some of these chants or other that you'd, you'd shared earlier, this, that, that, that's one element that works. He said, okay, is there anything else that might work out of this other thing that you did? 
And we started to package or think about the class as a whole and structure something that didn't look like the product or the classroom management system that was in this book or off of this video or off of this person's checklist. But we took the best from this program and that program and another program and we began to piece together a classroom management system that worked for my group. Because my group had diverse needs. It was a smart group. It was a challenging group. It was a group that had a breadth of challenges academically, both from the high end and the low end. And I needed to make sure I structured what I did for that group. But there were some things that had to happen. See, Leon talked about the idea that, hey, if you have this, you have a way to, in your classroom, support your students' understanding of their progress behaviorally as well as academically, but behaviorally in this this issue, this instance. If you have that, that's one element you need. It could be a sticker chart. It could be a tally chart. It could be a mini economy system. It could be something has to help the students understand where they're at and where they're progressing throughout the day. He also then talked about the idea of a positive context. You've got to have the idea, how, how do you let the students kind of win back? They can't always be going downhill. They've got to be able to go uphill sometimes too because if they go downhill, they're just going to keep going downhill. And so we talked about these different little things. And out of that, I was able to put together something that within a few weeks I had it going in my classroom and I ended that school year by structuring something well, doing more in that last semester than I got done in the first semester and probably would have gotten done in a full year if I hadn't really put it together in that way. It was mom's meatloaf. It was a different meatloaf than my mother-in-law's meatloaf. It, but it was meatloaf. It had all the things that should go into a well-crafted classroom management system. I think about a school-wide system the same way. There are some core key elements that have to be in there, and that's where this P2R2 program comes about. And the P's are positive and proactive, and the R's are responsive and restorative. Now, each of these ingredients won't work unless they're mixed up well together or won't come off the same. Right? You can have beef, you fry it up, it's just going to be a burger. But when you mix it with the binder and then you put in the right spices and then you put in the covering, you get meatloaf. The only way something becomes meatloaf is because it gets mixed up in the right way. Well, these ingredients, these four things, positive, proactive, responsive, and restorative, work together synchronously to support student engagement, student social, emotional wellness, um, it helps structure what happens in your building, ensuring that everybody has a platform for learning. But it can look different in each building. The, the formula itself is really just the things that you've got to have in place. So let's talk about positive for a moment. What would I need in my building to what I call have an insanely positive environment? Well, I'm going to have to structure some things. It depends on age. It could be morning meetings. It could be four before the door where you, where you are greeting the students with a smile and helping them unpack their baggage. I think I've talked about that before in a different podcast. It could be all of these different elements that help you structure or craft an insanely positive environment within your school. It could be the way you reward students. It could be the types of language that your teachers use. Do the things that you say build up self-efficacy or do they tear down? You know, training yourself to say things in a different way, it can be one of the most challenging things you can do as a teacher, but it can also be one of the most powerful things. So the words we use, find that book and read it. Uh, make sure you understand the types of language that we use. Uh, Fall down seven times, stand up eight. There's an incredible book out there that uh, it talks about this idea. 
look at these texts and, and understand the words we use and the type of positive language that you use can impact how students function and, and uh, how they think about themselves. How do you think about your kids? Do you honestly believe that every child can learn? Do you honestly believe that every child has an opportunity to be the best they can be? That mindset's important. A growth mindset, as Carol Dweck would talk about, is critical to an insanely positive environment. A belief structure that every kid can make it, every kid can be what they need to be. That can look different in every building. So really what I'm talking about here isn't the idea that you have to have a specific positive supports program. You could use PBIS. You could use a mini economy system. You could have, uh, you know, you could have something that has an acronym across the board where uh, it could be. A, a, we had STAR in in one building that I was in. It was safety and teamwork. It was just different things in that acronym, and then each of those were used in each area to provide a proactive structure. We do that here. We have a PBIS program. Um, we don't necessarily have that, but we say safe, respect, safe, respectful, and responsible. Be those things, and you're a Rockport student. Be a Rockport student. Those are what then we use in every area to structure a proactive stance. There's that second P and how it ties in. But it's positive because we focus on those positive things in those areas. We point out what happened in that area and say, hey, I liked how so-and-so did this, but we won't point out the negative. I didn't like how so-and-so did that. I might talk to that student individually, but in a group, I don't call out the negative. I don't want to spotlight the bad thing. I want to spotlight the good. You know, how do you focus the positive energy in building? What do you do with staff and how do you keep their morale up? How do you get them engaged in a way that they're excited to be here each and every day? How do you build trust? What do you do? You need to have an insanely positive environment. That's one core key element to having a well-rounded, well-established social-emotional program. Really, just to be honest, a school program. A program that allows everybody to learn and get along and and get out of the brainstem and and work on the thing that we're here for, which is academics. Second part is proactive. Structuring everything in a way that everybody understands what to do. Common sense is not common. Common sense isn't common. Unless I know what you know, and unless I had the same life experiences when I walk through the door, I'm going to think meatloaf is this, and you're going to think meatloaf is that. Mom's meatloaf is different. It's only common if we come from the same house and ate the same mom's meatloaf. See what I did there? I tied meatloaf again again. So it, it's necessary that you train everyone, staff and students, on a common language, a common theme, a common structure, a common understanding. And you do that in a proactive manner. You teach it. You can't just expect them to know it. Every child comes through the door with the, the things that they have and the things that they are going to be able to use based on what they their, their prior life experience. They come through with what the best they've got. You have to use that and build upon it to train the students to what you need them to be able to do, to have the type of environment, the type of culture that you want in the building. So being proactive in training and creating a structure, whether it be in morning meetings for older kids, that might be in you know having a homeroom. Uh, you may have a time during the day where you go back and meet with an advisor. Uh, it could be for the younger kiddos, it could be, doing role play and activities where you actually have them mock up different situations and practice what they should do in that situation. For high school, it could just be debates and Socratic seminars around looking at a text and, hey, how would you react if you were the character? What would you do? And getting students talking about the types of things that you want them to learn, that you want them to know, but also how do you want them to act? We have to teach our kids to be the citizens and the types of 
kiddos that we want in our classrooms and to be honest, the neighbors that we want later. Nobody wants a sucky neighbor. What types of citizens do you want in your community? Work on that. Have a character traits program. Define and describe and, and, and craft a program that helps your students understand the types of things that they need to be good students and good citizens and good community members. And then teach it. Talk about it. Make it important. Celebrate it. Find a way to craft something that you're teaching in a proactive manner all of the things you want your kids to do. Now, not every kid's going to respond the same way. Most kids will. If you've got a program that is driving about 85 to 90% of your students to be what you want them to be each and every day, that you've got, you're going to have an awesome school year for one. But there are always going to be those few outliers. And those few outliers, if you aren't careful and you put too much of a microscope on that issue, and that's where you spend all your time and energy, well, one, you're going to feel pretty defeated and you're going to fail to recognize that 90% of your kids are doing everything right, the right each and every day. But how do, you, how do you respond to that small, hopefully that very small, if you've crafted a good program, you're very positive in everything you're doing, then there should be a very narrow group of students who are not able to engage like you want them to. Maybe they don't have the right training yet. Maybe they need some more support. That would be what you'd call tier two. Tier one is that whole group, that 90%, 85-90%. Your tier two is probably about uh, 7% of your students to 10% of your students. These are going to be a group that needs some specific structures and supports. Specific training, maybe they have a disability, maybe they have some other special needs, maybe there's some concerns, or maybe they're just a kiddo who needs a lot of extra love. And you're going to have to supply that in a different way to help those kiddos be what they need to be in the classroom and in that general work that you do. And then you're going to have those tier three kiddos, that one or less percent, hopefully students, maybe one to 3% at maximum. If you got more than that, you got to look at your whole program. But how do you structure something really intensive for those kiddos? What are you going to do with mentorships? What are you going to do for with them for having connectivity with adults and individual training and time to support their social emotional needs? Maybe they need therapy. Maybe you're going to have to connect the parents to outside resources to support them to make sure they're getting what they need to be successful. You got to respond. And how do you respond? Sometimes that response in the, in the general context is a consequence. You've, you've got to say, okay, you had this, you, I have one of my teachers who says, you know, you choose the action, you choose the consequence. Well, to be honest, that's true, right? If I choose this particular action, then I might know that there is a consequence for that. If I've got common knowledge, I should understand that if I do this, this is likely going to happen. Your response should be proportionate and it should be engaged in the type of thing that, that occurred. Not random, not zero tolerance, not, hey, if you do this or this or this, well, you're going to get that and that that has nothing to do with what they did. If the let, recess... Lots of things happen on recess. Your consequences should be around recess. If the boys can't play basketball right, take basketball away for a little while. And then find a way to go out and teach them how to play basketball better so that they can do it the right way. Aren't kids supposed to learn in school? That includes behavior too. We can't just expect them all to be good. We've got to teach and support and help them grow. That's that responsive nature. So I'm going to respond to whatever behavior challenges I have. That's the third key element. And then the fourth ingredient, the fourth key element that goes into, I think, this well-crafted recipe for success in social-emotional learning is restorative. 
Everybody wants to be restored. Nobody likes the cone of shame. Nobody. I don't want to wear it. You don't want to wear it. You don't want to feel like you're put out because whatever I did, I can't ever get back into the group. I can't ever be a party to the group again. Nobody wants to be set aside. Nobody wants to wear the cone of shame. So how do you work with your kiddos to allow them to have restitution, to have a consequence that fixes it? Now, I'm not saying you can't sometimes suspend or can't sometimes give a detention or something that isn't directly related to. Maybe if they've hurt someone, they have to have some time away just to create that safety barrier for a little bit so that when they do reenter, you have time to work with them and also support the victim. Restorative practices talk about the idea that you not just focus your energy on the person who did the action, but you also have to focus your energy on those who were hurt by the action. You restore the whole community. You make sure that apologies are given, things are done in that restitution and responsive section that allow the student to be restored and everybody feel like that child was restored to the program. Restorative practices are hard. They are not easy. There's a lot of literature and I could spend an entire hour talking about things that I've learned about restorative practices, but it's a part of it. It's going to look different in every building. It's going to look different at every age. And so at the end of the day, talking about mom's meatloaf and social emotional learning. Meatloaf is going to look different in whichever household you're in. Social emotional learning should look different in every school you're in, but I believe honestly it should have four key ingredients. It's got to be positive. It's got to be proactive. It's got to be responsive and it has got to be restorative. And if you have those four things in your classroom, if you have those four things in your school, Well, you're going to be awesome, and our kids don't deserve anything less. 